Christians would call apologetic messages. And we've decided to call the theme of this series Intellectual Honesty, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And we just want to encourage people to be intellectually honest when it comes to the information about the Christian faith. You know, we live in a very skeptical world, right? I mean, I've never, in my lifetime, there has never been a generation that I have seen uh, that's been more skeptical. And we have heard people question, for example, uh, things that, like, did the moon landing really happen? Maybe you're one of those who's questioned that. We've had people even question, did the shootings at Sandy Hook really happen? And so there's lots of folks that are very skeptical, and it's very easy to be skeptical about religion. And we get that. And one of the reasons why it's easy to be skeptical about religion, these events that I just mentioned happened during my lifetime. Well, we're talking about a religion that was formed uh, not just... 2,000 years ago, but over 6,000 years ago. And so, why shouldn't you be skeptical? When you're basing your faith upon an ancient book from ancient history, you should be skeptical. And you should ask serious questions about the reliability of the stories that you hear and the reliability of the uh, ancient book itself, is it reliable? This morning, Brandon's going to come and share with us, and he's going to answer the question, did Jesus die? And most of the information that you're going to hear from him today is going to come from the scriptures, this ancient book that we rely upon as the source of our faith and the source of truth. A few weeks ago, I preached a message and the question was, is the Bible reliable? As an ancient book from an ancient civilization, is it reliable? And I pointed you in three directions to evaluate that. One is using textual criticism. Is the Bible reliable? Is what we're reading today what was written then? And how do we know if it is? And we saw that, we can know that, based on textual criticism, that what we're reading today is what was written then, we know that based upon a couple of things. One is, we know it based upon the number of ancient texts that have been recovered that support that what we're reading now was, written, was what was written then. And then also, we know that because of all the ancient texts that have ever been discovered, the Bible has more to support it textually and closer to the time period that it was actually written than any other ancient text in history. And then we saw that the Bible was reliable not only because of textual criticism, but because of historical criticism. If you want to verify something happened historically, the way that you do it is that you have many different witnesses. And we looked at the different witnesses to the reliability of the Bible from history. One of the witnesses of all those authors, of all those witnesses, is all the authors of the Bible themselves. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 different authors. And so you have 40 different authors that are saying this is true, that all lived in ancient history. But outside the Bible, you also have others, uh, historians and documents that support that so many of the, uh, that support many of the events in the history of the Bible. And so 
The Bible passes the test of historical criticism and textual criticism. What about the scientific method when it comes to scientific reasoning? Well, we understand that scientific reasoning is based upon experiment and observation. Well, we weren't there when all of these things took place, so how can we have today any kind of scientific reasoning and look at the Bible objectively from a scientific, logical viewpoint? Well, what we would challenge you to do is treat the prophecies of the Bible using scientific reasoning. In other words, experiment. Look at the prophecies in the Bible, and there's over 2,000 of those prophecies. And then look at the ones that came true. Look at when they were written and when the events actually happened that were written in the Bible. And measure that. And I think what you'll come to the conclusion is, boy, based on that, Something had to be going on for all of these prophecies to be written hundreds of years before these events happen, and then the events happen. So anyway, we believe the Bible's reliable, and this morning Brandon's going to come and share with us, based upon the reliability of the Bible, the answer to the question, and he's probably going to use some other sources as well, but that will be his primary source, did Jesus die? So let's welcome uh, our executive pastor, Brandon Werner, as he comes and share with us this morning. I was just talking to Justin Walter. He's on security this morning out here, and we were talking about preaching this morning, and we were talking about the foolishness of preaching, and that's a thing in the Bible, uh, in case you didn't know about that. And it doesn't mean that it's foolish to necessarily preach. In fact, the Bible tells us we need to preach, uh, but just the foolishness of trying to capture into human words and human concepts God and who he is and what he's done for us and why we need him so much. But I, I have this confidence this morning that everyone who's in this room, that you're not here by accident, but that God has you here for a reason and that he wants you to hear not, not just these words that I'm sharing with you, but he wants to speak directly to you this morning and to share his heart with you. And so I hope you're ready to listen uh, and to be intellectually honest as we examine Jesus and as we examine specifically the events surrounding the death of Jesus. So before we can start into this, uh, we, need to get, we need to make sure we have the story, you know, the context, what was going on in this time, what was happening, uh, and, and, and uh, it, before we can really examine the evidence around those things. So uh, in case you don't know the story, today is actually a, a historical anniversary date. Does anyone know what this day is in history? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. It's the start of Passion Week, the start of Holy Week, and it's actually a historical week because uh, this week, have you ever wondered why Easter jumps around the calendar so much and it's always so hard to pin that holiday down and you're trying to make family plans and it's never consistent? Well, it's because it doesn't follow our calendar. It follows a different calendar. It follows a lunar calendar, a calendar based on the phases of the moon, and it's a calendar like the Jews use, the Jewish people. And so really, Easter and the events of Holy Week, the events of Jesus' death, uh, are, are marked in history by that calendar, not by the one that we use. And so it's important to recognize that, and that's why today is Palm Sunday, and today is the start, the historical date of the start of Holy Week, of Passion Week, and it's the start of the week where Jesus died. And so the story goes like this. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem. 
And people were gathered all around, and they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. We sang about it this morning. You may remember it in the first song. They were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were lifting up his praises. And it was a glorious moment for Jesus and for his disciples as they entered in to Jerusalem, and Jesus rode on that donkey. But there were some people in the crowd who were less than thrilled about this situation. They were the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish religious leaders, uh, members of the Sanhedrin, which was the body of leaders of the Jewish council that, that led in that area of Jerusalem uh, for the Jews. And so they were providing that leadership there, and they were less than thrilled about Jesus's arrival onto the scene because they knew what Jesus was doing and what he had already been saying. Jesus had been not silent up to this point about who he was. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the son of man. When Peter asked him, who are you? Or when he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus agreed with him. And so Steve preached on this last week, was Jesus God? And we saw in there the prophecy saying, yes, Jesus is God. And so he knew who he was and he had been talking about it. And it made the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, really frustrated and upset that he was claiming this. And then one of the prophecies about this Messiah, the, the Son of God who would come, one of the prophecies about him was that he would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. So by riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, he was just stating again what he had already stated, that he was the Messiah, that he was God. And by stating that, the Jewish leaders hated him for it. They hated him for it because he was a threat to their power. Messiah outranks Jewish leader in the Sanhedrin, okay? So he had more authority and more power. They didn't like that threat. Not only that, but they didn't believe what he said. They thought he was a liar. And so they decided that blasphemy, according to their law, was deserving of death. And so they really didn't like Jesus. They really wanted him dead. And they actually came up to him on Palm Sunday, and they told him, tell all the crowds and tell all of your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus answered in a way that just made them hate him even more because he said, I tell you this for sure, that if I told that if they were silent, that the rock would cry out and worship me. And they hated that. That was another prophecy in the Old Testament referring to his status as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And so they began to plot. They'd already been plotting, but they really got busy. And after it, they began to plot to determine how they might go about killing Jesus. But they didn't want to do it in public. There was a lot of people that were on Jesus' side. It was a high-tension week because it was the week of Passover, which was a festival in Jerusalem. And there was high tension between uh, the Jews and the Romans, okay? Because the Jews had some authority there that they could exercise in Jerusalem, but they lived in the period of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had come in and conquered that region. And so they were the ultimate governing authority of that region. And so there was this constant stress. There was this constant pressure between the Jews and the Romans, and this effort to maintain peace. And so the religious leaders, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, they knew that if they during the day, it might start a riot. It might mean that, they, that their positions were threatened, or it might mean that some of the Jews that they cared about would die. And so they didn't want to cause... We need a plan to find another way to get this done besides just arresting him in broad daylight. We can't risk the riot. So they began to scheme, they began to plan, and look for a way to kill Jesus. 
Well, after Jesus arrived, uh, it was the week of Passover, which is a very, very special and important holiday in the Jewish culture. The week of Passover commemorates uh, uh, G- or God and his deliverance of the Jewish people and atonement for sin. So it was a really important week to them. They had all these traditions around it that they kept, that God had given them many of these traditions, and they had added some of their own, and they they had all these traditions that they believed that they needed to keep there on that week. So it was a very important week, and Jesus, being a Jew himself, wanted to observe the Passover with his disciples. So he gave them directions on how to set that up, and they went and they set it up in an upper room, and Jesus and his disciples went and they shared the Passover that night. And Jesus began to talk to them, and he began to tell them what was about to happen, that his body was going to be broken for their sins, that his blood was going to be poured out for their sins, and they struggled to understand it. They asked a lot of questions, and and they just couldn't grasp what he was trying to share with them. And during the course of the meal, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his closest friends, there was 12 that were the disciples, One of them was named Judas. And Judas, his heart was filled up by Satan to do evil towards God, towards Jesus. And he got up from that table and he left the room and he went and he found the high priest who was in charge of the Sanhedrin. And he made arrangements to betray Jesus into their hands under the cover of night. Well, when Judas left, it was no secret to Jesus. Jesus actually gave him permission to go because Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. And so he chose to stay. He could have ran, but he chose to stay. And they went out to a garden where they often visited with his disciples, and he talked to them some more on the way, and then they arrived in the garden, and Jesus began to pray in that garden. And as Jesus prayed in the garden, the scripture says that his soul was greatly troubled. He was under tremendous distress because he knew Full well the events that were about to follow that moment. He asked his disciples to stay awake and pray with him, but they did not. They fell asleep. They didn't mean to. They were just weak, and they didn't grasp the seriousness of the moment. They didn't know, but Jesus knew. And the Bible says he was under so much stress and distress that he began to sweat drops of blood, which is an actual medical condition that can happen to a person who's under tremendous distress. He began to sweat drops of blood and he prayed this prayer he said father if there is any other way would you remove this cup from me but then he said nevertheless not my will but yours be done and you know in that moment jesus knew but in that moment he and the father agreed once again on a plan that they had that had been in motion since before the foundations of the world. And that plan was to rescue all of mankind from our sin. And they agreed right there that there was no other way. And so Jesus stayed knowing what was about to happen. And some men came from the Sanhedrin and they arrested him. And they bound him up. And they treated him very unjustly. They spit on him. They mocked him. They beat him. They called him names. And in their trial, they convicted Jesus of blasphemy, saying that he's God. 
You know, it's only blasphemy if you say it and you're not God. But they convicted him of it. They believed that he had committed blasphemy. And according to their law, Jesus needed to die. But they didn't have the power to carry out the execution. Here come those Romans again. They couldn't do it. The Romans were the governing authority in charge. And so they didn't have the authority to order the execution of Jesus. So they had to use some trickery. They had to use some deception to finish it off. So they took Jesus in chains to the Roman leader, Pontius Pilate. And when he arrived, Pilate didn't find any fault with Jesus, but Jesus stood trial there before Pilate. And uh, the Jewish leaders pressured him because Pilate was a governor of the state of Rome and the highest power in the state of Rome was Caesar. Caesar was their king And the Jewish religious leaders began to put pressure on Pilate, saying things like, if you don't kill him, you're no friend of Caesar. That that bothered Pilate a lot. He understood what that meant. And then Pilate said to them at one point, because Pilate was, was, you know, just kind of torn about the whole situation. He said, you want me to crucify your king? And the high priest, the leader of the Sanhedrin, spoke up. And he said, we have no king but Caesar. You know, according to Jewish law, that's blasphemy. The very thing he was pointing the finger at Jesus for, which he was not guilty of, he became guilty of in that moment and committed blasphemy. Well, at that, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate felt like his hands were tied and he really had no choice. He felt like he had to carry this out. So he washed his hand in a basin in front of all of them and he dried them off and he said, my hands are innocent of the blood of this man. And he sent Jesus off to be crucified. Jesus was flogged. We'll get into that in a moment. And then he was crucified. And he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. Then after he died, he was taken down from the cross. And um, he was taken over to a tomb. And he was placed in that tomb that was nearby. And they rolled this massive stone in front of the tomb. And his body was there buried in the ground. And we'll stop the story there because next week, Pastor Jerry is going to continue the story right there. But that's where our story is going to end for this morning. So this is based on, this story that I just told you is based on the four gospel accounts in the Bible. These are four different witnesses, four different authors who wrote about these events. And they all either were eyewitnesses to these events or they spoke with people who were eyewitnesses to these events. And so much like a reporter would do in our day, gathering the facts and then documenting it. That's what these men did. They followed the story, they gathered the facts, they documented it, and it's preserved in those four Gospels. Now, the crucifixion of Jesus uh, is actually preserved extra-biblically too. And I have those in my sermon notes. You can go online and check those, or I can send you those resources if you talk to me. But in in a brief study that I did, I found four uh, extra-biblical historical documents that talked about Jesus and talked about his death and his crucifixion. So his death, Jesus going to the cross, is a very historical uh, event, and it's well documented in history. But before we get into the evidence to really examine and determine, did Jesus die? I think there's another question that we answer first that will help us understand the significance of this event. And the question we need to answer first is, why did Jesus have to die? That's the question. Why did Jesus have to die? 
And we're going to look at this from the Bible's perspective. Now, I, I recognize I, maybe not all of you have studied the Bible. Maybe you don't all know the Bible, or maybe you don't even agree with the Bible. But I want you to listen for just a moment, and I want you to consider what the Bible says about why Jesus had to die. And so let's jump into that. You see, in the beginning, there was God, and God is perfect, and he is holy, he's righteous, and God made a decision that he wanted to create man. And he made mankind in his image and in his likeness. You see, there's things like this. God's an eternal being. He made us people in his image. We are eternal beings. God has a spirit. He gave us a spirit. And so there are these things that God did to make us, you and me in his image. And when God made us, he made us to be in right relationship with him. There was nothing separating us from God. We were in perfect relationship with God and with each other, and everything was good according to the Bible. But then there was a problem. You see, you might remember this story. Do you remember Adam and Eve? Maybe from Sunday school, Adam and Eve. And in that story with Adam and Eve, uh, God placed these first two humans that he had created in his image in the garden. And when he placed them in the garden, he, he gave them everything to take care of. And he placed in the garden a tree. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree was a tree that he placed there. And he said, you should not eat of this tree. And he told them, if you eat of this tree, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So he left them there in the garden, and God walked with man in the garden, and he was in right relationship with them. And Adam and Eve, after some time, they were tempted in the garden. You see, there was this serpent that came. It was Satan, disguised as a serpent. And he came and entered into the garden, and he tempted Adam and Eve. And he began to talk to them about the fruit of that tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve saw it, and it looked good to her. It looked really good. And Satan began to say things to question God. He began to say things like, did God really say that you can't eat of that? And then he began to challenge God's integrity. He said, you know, God doesn't want you to eat of that because he knows if you eat of that fruit, you'll become like him. So Satan did what he's done throughout all of humanity. Satan lied to us. To, to humanity in order to get us to disobey God. And the moment that Adam and Eve made a choice to reach out and to take that fruit and to eat of that fruit, they became usurpers of the authority of God. They said, we don't want God to be in charge of our lives. We don't trust him. We trust ourselves to be the boss of our lives. We trust our way. We want what we want we don't care what God wants. And they made the choice. They made the choice to become a usurper and to disobey God. Well, the Bible says that we've all done that. See, the moment that Adam and Eve made that choice to sin, they were separated from God because of their sin. And remember what God said. He said, the day you eat of that fruit you will surely die. Now, we need to question this for just a moment because in that moment that they ate of that fruit, I want to tell you that that day, their heart didn't stop beating. Their brain activity didn't stop, or stop firing. They were still living physically. 
So we have two conclusions that could be drawn here. Either one, God lied to them. And he said, of that day, of the day you eat it, you will surely die. And he lied to them. Or number two, the type of death God was talking about on that day was different. And I want you to know what the Bible teaches about that. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible teaches that as soon as Adam and Eve made the decision to eat of that fruit and usurp God and disobey him, that they were separated from God in their sin and they experienced death spiritually, a spiritual death. You know, a simple definition of death is something being separated that ought not be separated, right? When we talk about uh, our physical beings, we know there's something in us that knows that there's more to us than what you see, right? There's more to me than what you see. Uh, For example, we've been to funerals before. Maybe you've been to a funeral where there's a body in the casket, and when the body is there in the casket, someone like the preacher or someone else will say something like, well, they're in a better place, Well, if we're talking about their body, no, they're not. They're right here, and we don't like the place that they're in. But we believe something about ourselves. We believe something because this is part of God's nature in us, that we are more than meets the eye, that I am more than just this shell that you're looking at, that there's a spiritual side of me. And when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, that side of them died, and they became dead in their trespasses and their sins. And we can all relate to that. Every single one of us can. I mean, just think about it for yourself. Have you ever made a decision that you know was wrong, that was evil, that was wicked, that caused you pain or caused someone else pain? If you've done that, then you can relate to Adam and Eve because that's exactly what they did in the garden. And the Bible says that they came under the curse of sin and that they were separated from God because of their sins. And in that day, they died. And then all their descendants, all their descendants were born in that same condition. We're all children of Adam and Eve. We all were born into sin, and we are all sinners by choice. And the Bible teaches that there's none righteous, no, not one. Now, in that story of Adam and Eve, there's a foreshadowing. There's a, there's a picture, because remember, we're asking the question, why did Jesus have to die? There's a picture or a clue in this story about Adam and Eve, about why Jesus had to die. Because after Adam and Eve sinned, God is just, and he's the only one who can really weigh the full weight of sin. I I don't know your thoughts. I don't know your heart. I don't know all the things you've done in your life. I don't know that about one person in here, much less all of you. But did you know that God knows that about every single person in the whole world? That he saw every murder that took place on this planet last night. That he saw every wicked sexual act that took place on this planet. That he was a witness to it. He witnessed that sin. He knows it all. He sees it all. Nothing escapes his eye. And he understands the weight of sin. And what it does to you and what it does to me And he knows full well what it does to him and the pain that it causes God. Have you ever thought about that before? That your sin causes God pain. Now it's a real, it's a, it it seems like a crazy concept, but it's real simple for us to understand because we understand that when I love someone else and they sin in a way that hurts me, that causes me pain. Have you ever experienced that before? 
I mean, where, where you love someone else deeply and then the choice that they make to do something wrong impacts you and causes you to suffer. It causes you pain. Well, God knows that feeling well because, you see, he loves us deeply. His love is right. It is good. It is holy. It is not self-centered. He is affectionate towards us and loves us. So when we sin and we are wicked, it causes him to hurt because it hurts him to watch us hurt ourselves. It hurts him to watch us hurt others, and it hurts him because we're usurping him as God in our life, and it causes him pain. And God is very just. We understand that when there's bad things, wicked things committed, we understand that in those wicked things, there needs to be a punishment that fits the crime, right? I mean, if someone murders someone you love, it wouldn't be good enough to you if they fined them $1,000, would it? I mean, would that be a just punishment to you? We, un- we all understand this, that whatever the, pu- whatever the crime is, in order for justice to be served, the punishment has to equal the crime, right? I mean, that's what we're seeking when we're seeking justice. Well, God sees the whole weight of sin. He understands what sin does to humanity, what it's done to you, what it's done to others, what it's done to him. You know, I think a good analogy for this is an addict. Have any of you ever been close to an addict, like had an addict that was in your life? And if you have, I think you can really relate to this because when you have an addict that you're close to and you love that person, the first thing that you hate is you hate what that addiction is doing to them. I mean, it just, it hurts you so much to watch them go through that kind of pain and that kind of suffering. And then you see what their addiction is doing to the loved ones around them. And it causes so much pain. And marriages have ended because of addictions. Children have been abandoned because of addictions. This problem goes, has a wide scope. And as bad as addiction is, I want you to know that sin in the presence of a holy God far outweighs even the pain and suffering caused by an addiction. That the pain we've caused each other, that the pain we've caused ourselves, that the pain we've called, caused God is heavy. Super, super heavy. And only God can fully weigh it and understands it entirely. And so, the question here, why did Jesus have to die? It's answered in this. The clue in the garden is that after Adam and Eve sinned and were separated from God, God killed an animal and he used the skin of that animal to make clothes and to cover Adam and Eve's shame. And you see, from the beginning, even from that story, the picture of the Bible is that the only way that justice can be served for sin is through death. And so we die spiritually, and we all die physically, because that is the just and due consequence. That is the due, what we, that is our wages, is what Romans says. The wages of sin is death. That is what we have earned. That is what we are owed because of our sin. When God measures it, he says death. That is the judgment for sin. But in God's nature, he is loving. He is compassionate and merciful, and he doesn't wish that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so the Bible teaches that when we're separated from God like this, 
that there's no way we can get back to God on our own. Some people want to believe that you can. Maybe I'll read my Bible. Maybe I'll pray. Maybe I'll, you know, uh, go to church, get baptized, do good stuff, and eventually I'll work my way back to God and I'll be in a right relationship with him again. And I'll be alive with God again. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says you're either alive with God or you're dead and separated from God in your trespasses and sin. And there is no in-between ground. And because I've sinned, I'm separated from God. And so now that I'm separated from God, there's nothing I can do to earn my way back to God. I'm dead. I'm lost in my trespasses and sins. But the Bible teaches that God didn't want us to stay in this state, but he wanted us to have a right relationship with him. Because if any man dies physically in this state, he he experiences the judgment of God. And that judgment is a just judgment. Did you know that when it comes to the judgment of God, this baffles me. I can't get a room full of people this size to agree with me most of the time on something that I want to say. You know, trying to get everyone's opinions aligned is almost impossible to do. But when Jesus returns and we stand before him, before the judgment seat, he will make judgments about our condition, whether we were dead in our sins or alive with God, and his judgment will not be refuted, but all will agree. Every person from all of history, from the beginning till now, and anyone who lives after us, in that moment, they'll all agree, all of humanity. Have you ever been on Facebook and scrolled comments? Do you know how hard it is for people to agree on anything, right? They will all agree that his judgment is just and right. It's crazy. So that's what the Bible teaches, and it teaches that if we die in this condition, that we will be separated from God forever, experiencing the just punishment due to us because of our sin. But God loves us and didn't want to leave us there. So this answers the question, why did Jesus have to die? Well, in the eyes of God, for justice to be satisfied and for our sins to be forgiven, someone had to die. And it had to be someone who was a representative that could die for all of us. I couldn't die for you. I have to die for my own sins. You can't die for me because you have to die for your own sins. So there was only one solution, and it's the one that the Father and the Son agreed on in the garden. That there was no other way except for God to enter into our condition and become a man, live a sinless and perfect life, and then give up his life as a willing sacrifice so that by his blood we could receive forgiveness for our sins. And that's what the Bible teaches. So God judges that weight, and he understands the weight of sin, and he knows that it's because of Jesus and his death on the cross. It's only through Jesus that we can receive the forgiveness of sins. So that's what the Bible teaches about why Jesus had to die. And there's one more note I want to give you on that, is that Jesus not only had to die, but he had to suffer. According to Isaiah 53, he had to become the suffering servant because his death completed the work of atoning for our sins but he was dying for all of our sins he was taking the punishment on himself so he had to suffer enough to take our place to be a substitute for our sins and you might ask well how much is enough well only god really knows how much is enough because he's the only one who can accurately weigh the devastation of sin. 
But let me do my best to answer the question now that we're asking today. And in this question, maybe you'll get a better idea of how much Jesus had to suffer for our sins. The question is, did Jesus die? That's the question that we're asking today and answering. Well, we've already shown you historically there's a lot of evidence. But let me talk to you for a moment medically about what Jesus endured. You see, Jesus, before he was sentenced to be crucified, was sentenced by Pontius Pilate to be flogged. Now, flogging is an extremely inhumane form of torture that was devised by the ancients. What you have to know about the ancients is we can't even begin to comprehend how barbaric they were when it came to how they treated other human beings. I mean, Pastor Jerry likes to say it this way, that there's a reason that cities had walls back then. I mean, if you didn't want your wife to be taken or your children to be taken or worse, then you needed to live in a walled city because of how wicked people were and how inhumane they treated each other. So flogging was something that the Romans did, and they had what they call a scourge. And we have a little graphic of it that you can see up here, a drawing. And this is the scourge. It had a wooden handle wrapped in leather, and it had like three leather um, individual pieces that would come off of it. And into that leather, they would tie in sharp pieces of sheep bone and ball bearings. And they would take the subject, Jesus in this case, and they would tie him up on a post with his hands above his head, where he was hanging there a little bit with his knees on the ground, just kind of stretched out. And they would strip him of his clothes, and they would start to whip him with this whip from the neck down to the back of the calves. And what would happen whenever he was whipped with this whip is at first, uh, there would be two soldiers. They would either take turns alternating between the blows, or one would hit until they were exhausted, and then tap out and let the other one finish. And as they exchanged, as they delivered these blows, what would happen at first is that the sheep bone, uh, the sharp pieces of sheep bone would cause lacerations in the skin. But as they continued to whip, it would rip open the skin and cut into the muscle and chip away bone and reveal organs. And then the ball bearings would cause blood blisters and bruising on a person. And at first, if you've ever had a blood blister under the skin, you know, where you can see that mark, at first it would cause that, but after repeated hitting, it would break open those blood blisters under the skin. Excruciating pain, so inhumane. Uh, I found pictures of it, and they were way too graphic to show in this setting. You can Google it, but it's crazy the, what, what people endured under uh, Roman flogging. So after they finished flogging Jesus, many people would actually die, often die, just from being flogged, and the blood loss was incredible. So after flogging Jesus, they picked him up and they put a, a, a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns. And we have a picture of that crown of thorns. A lot of times you see it where it's more like it wraps around the head, but this is more, like, more than likely more what it looked like in first century Roman times. It was, a, it was like a crown that came over the head, and they would press that down on the head, and then they would take rods and they would hit, strike that crown of thorns. And you have a, a lot of uh, vessels, blood vessels in your head. And that's why, like, if you've ever had a cut on your head, it bleeds a lot. Sometimes it's hard to stop the bleeding from an injury to the head. Well, Jesus would have just been constantly pouring, pouring blood from his head because of the crown of thorns that were placed on top of his head. So they took him in that condition back to Pilate, and then Pilate ordered that Jesus be crucified. 
crucifixion is the most, by, by, considered by some scholars, still the most excruciating way to die today. That there's no more painful way to die than, excru- than crucifixion. In fact, our word excruciating comes out of the word from the cross. So we, get, we had to make up a word to try to understand the pain that someone experienced. Jesus was made to carry his cross up to the hill at Calvary. And as he came to that cross, uh, they ripped the purple garment back off of him, re-exposing those wounds. And a lot of that, the garment would have um, become uh, more adhesive to those wounds by that time because the, the blood had dried. And so it was like re- reopening those wounds. And they would drop him on the cross and they nailed his hands. And in ancient times, wrist was considered part of the hands. And they nailed him through his wrist, which there's a lot of nerves right in here, to a cross. Now, what you don't see in Hollywood, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ or any other movie, what you don't see there very often is normally it looks like he's real tight, but they would have actually left room for a lot of bending. And and we'll get to why in just a moment. And then they would take his feet and they would put one on top of the other and they would bend his knees at a 45 degree angle. So you can tell that this is a very awkward position to be in. And they would take a nail and they would drive it through his feet with his knees at that 45 degree angle and then they would hoist him up on the cross. Well, what would happen at first, which you got to remember, Jesus had just been flogged and he had collapsed on the road on the way there. He was massively dehydrated, hadn't drank anything since the night before. And so you got you to gotta know Jesus is already weak, but when they lift him up on the cross, the most comfortable, if you will, position on the cross would have been at the beginning when his thigh muscles could hold. And at first, with that 45-degree angle, he would have held his weight on his thigh muscles holding himself up on the cross, but those muscles wouldn't have been able to last very long. And so as his muscles gave out, it would bend down further, transferring the weight to his legs and to his feet, it would cause that nail to rip through the flesh until it grabbed the bone to help hold. And then he would hang there on the cross like that, with, but, but his calf muscles couldn't hold out very long. And so it, it's then that he would sink into the position that ultimately killed people on the cross because cross wasn't, uh, the, the cause of death on a cross wasn't loss of blood. It was asphyxiation. You can't breathe. So what happens is because his arms were looser, it would pull him down into a position where it would quickly, when the weight got transferred to his arms, would dislocate his shoulders. And then shortly after, his elbow and then his wrist would become dislocated. And the, the research that I did showed that if you stretch your arm out, you know, at an uncomfortable distance, that crucifixion would often cause your arm to become about nine inches longer than its natural length because of the dislocation. And when you hang in that position, it causes strain on some muscles and diaphragm in this area, and it, it makes it so that you can breathe in, but you can't breathe out. So in order to breathe out, you have to pull yourself up, breathe out, and then you can go back down and breathe back in. So it's pretty easy for us to relate as far as the breathing goes. If you've ever held your breath, the first thing you want to do is exhale, So you can take another breath in and get more oxygen. Well, on the cross, you cannot exhale unless you pull up. And so what would happen is people would constantly, and they don't show this in Hollywood, uh, in Hollywood, they're they're kind of stationary, but people would constantly be moving up and down with their back against that wooden cross, just been flogged, working to breathe. 
struggling to breathe. And that's what the Roman soldiers would be laughing at, is their failed attempts to preserve their own life. It was a miserable, miserable experience. So once a person died on the cross, they'd be hanging down low. And when a person was dead, they stopped pulling back up. It was pretty easy to tell when a person was dead on the cross because they weren't pulling back up. So in the gospel accounts in the Bible, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then it says he gave up his spirit and died. Well, from that moment on, he would have been hanging down on the cross with his head down. And for a professional executioner, like a Roman soldier, tasked with the job of overseeing this execution, it would have been pretty easy for them to tell when someone was dead on the cross. But you know, Jesus was a potential war criminal, a riot raiser, a threat to peace in their area. So they went over the top with Jesus to make sure that he was dead because there was a lot on the line for that executioner. If he botched this job, it could cost him his own life or the life of his family as well. And so he had to get this right. So when he looked up at the cross and he saw Jesus, he was, it says, the Gospel of John said, being fairly certain that he was already dead, took his spear and thrust it through his side. And then something like water and blood came pouring out. Well, first of all, Jesus didn't move. There's no eyewitness account that Jesus moved when the spear went through his side. And that's, that's a sign of being dead. But beyond that, when the blood and water flowed, for, flowed from his side, that's actually a post-mortem condition that happens when your body has experienced a lot of trauma and distress. Fluid builds up around the heart. And if you were to pierce someone there shortly after death, the, the fluid would pour from their side. And so it's actually a medical thing uh, that would demonstrate that Jesus was dead on the cross. But here's to me what proves it beyond, beyond doubt. If we're asking the question, did Jesus die? What proves it beyond doubt is he hung in that condition while all four gospel writers, all four witnesses made the statement that Joseph of Arimathea who was not one of the disciples. He was actually a member of the Sanhedrin and a secret follower of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders. He decided to go back to Pontius Pilate and to get permission to take the body down from the cross. Now, I've been to Jerusalem, and I've been to the place where Jesus was crucified, and I've been to the place where Jesus was placed on trial where Pontius Pilate lived, and I can tell you from eyewitness experience that it's at least a 30-minute walk from the side of the cross to the site where Pontius Pilate would have been staying. So his body's on the cross and has been pierced and he's lifeless and hanging in a position where he cannot breathe while Joseph goes into the city, gets permission to take down the body of Jesus and then comes back and takes the body down. Now, how long can you go without air? But Jesus hung in a position where he did not and could not receive air while Joseph went and ran that errand and came back. Joseph got permission to take his body down they wrapped him up in linens, and they put him in a nearby tomb, and they, sold, and they sealed the tomb with a massive stone so that his body would not be disturbed. So the argument from some is that somehow Jesus survived the flogging and the execution with the extreme measures of the, of the piercing of his side, hung on the cross for at least an hour, if we're estimating, you know, the scriptures doesn't say how long, but for a good period of time while Joseph of Arimathea went and got permission to take the body down, was placed in a tomb, and then somehow revived on his own, unwrapped himself from the grave clothes, got out of the sealed tomb, and then was alive again. That's the theory of some about the death of Jesus. And I just want you to know that as that, those eyewitness accounts are studied, there is absolutely no chance of him surviving that. 
humanly speaking. There's no chance of him surviving that. Not only that, but the Romans, the Jews, and all the eyewitnesses all agreed that Jesus was dead. No one refuted it. If he had survived somehow, you would expect there to be some type of historical documentation that says, ah, we don't think he, we don't think he actually died. We think he survived, you know, and they would give their reasons, but no one did of that time. The argument came much later that Jesus survived crucifixion, and the argument was born out of this uh, simple claim that, well, if Jesus went to the cross but then was seen after he was buried, he must have survived because we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So that was, that's, that's the simple argument about why people have come up with that argument. But the, the reality is it just cannot be true. Jesus went to the cross and was crucified, and he died on the cross. And now we get to the last part, and this is where I want to give you an opportunity. He died on the cross. Why did he do it? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus died on the cross to save you and me from our sins. That's why he died on the cross. And he suffered on the cross because his suffering had to be equitable, equitable for our sins. It had to be just to pay for the pain and the suffering that our sins have caused God, ourselves, and others. So Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our sins. So now you've heard this information. And because you've heard it, you're not ignorant. You understand what Jesus endured, and you understand the claims of the Bible that Jesus endured it so that you could receive forgiveness of sins. He took your place and your punishment on the cross. So now that you've heard it, all that's left is you have to make a choice. You have to choose, are you going to ignore this information that's been shared with you today, or are you going to choose to receive it? And I want to ask if you would just bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. If you want to choose to receive what Jesus has done for you today, you can do that. God is here and in this place. You are not here by accident. Jesus died and suffered on the cross to pay for your sins. Past, present, and future, all done. You could do nothing to earn your way back to God. Your sins separated you from God. But Jesus' death on the cross was a sufficient death in the eyes of a just God to pay for your sin and to bring you back to life spiritually and to make you right with God. And if you believe that, then Jesus has forgiven your sins. And if you've never believed that before, you can choose to believe that today. And I want to make this just as simple as I can for you. I want to ask everyone to repeat after me. We're going to say this prayer. And you, with your head bowed and eyes closed, just say this prayer after me. And if you're saying this prayer for the first time, just say it to the Lord. Just tell him this prayer. Just say, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sins. I accept what Jesus did for me. All right, you can look up at me for just a moment. And as you look up at me, I want you to know this truth, that if you said that, that the Bible teaches this real clearly, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you prayed that prayer with sincerity in your heart, I want to tell you with absolute confidence, as one who's experienced it myself, 
that Jesus has forgiven your sins, that you are a new creation in Christ, that his Holy Spirit is meeting you right here. He's cleared the record of your wrong, and you have a new life in Christ. This is what the scripture says. He who knew no sin, Jesus was like this. We're like this because of our sin. He who knew no sin went to the cross and became sin for us. They put the nails in his hand so that we might become the righteousness of God. He brought us back to God. And it's actually better than before because in the process, he revealed his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. And the Bible says that he didn't just bring us back to God. He made us one with God in Christ and with each other. And these gifts are ours. Ephesians 2 says, every single blessing in the spiritual realm belongs to you in Christ. All the blessings of God in Christ are yours because whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I'm curious, and I believe that because you're here this morning, that God may be working in your heart, and I want to give you the opportunity to respond to him this morning the way that the Bible teaches us that we should respond. You see, the Bible says that when we come to know Christ, what we should do is we should be baptized. This isn't something the church made up. This is something God invented and that Jesus is the one who prescribed for us to do. And baptism is a real simple picture. There's a lot of different analogies for baptism, but for, the one, for what I shared with you today, I think the one that makes most, most sense is when we go under the water, it's like going into the grave and saying the old us is dead, the sinful me, my past, the choices I've made, it's all dead in Christ. And when we come out of the water, it symbolizes the new life we have in Christ. Baptism also symbolizes the washing away of sins. The water doesn't wash our sins away. We can't do anything to earn our way back to God, and that includes baptism. But the water represents the washing of the sins that happens when we believe on Jesus and we're saved. So if you've received Jesus today, we're actually prepared to baptize you today. And we want to give you that opportunity. When God stirs in your heart, my recommendation is just to jump at it, right? Not to take that for granted, not to assume that you'll have another opportunity later, but just when God is stirring in your heart, just to say, let's do this. I want to be baptized. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you, if you would all just stand with me for just a moment. Scott's going to lead us in a song at the piano. And as he plays the piano, then, uh, and we sing this song, I want to invite you that if you want